Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle, where today we'll be talking about the health sector. We'll be talking about the NHS and the challenges it faces. We'll be talking about something called the British Islamic Medical Association. Quite fascinating. And with me today to discuss these issues, Dr. Amr Hamid, a consultant cardiologist, and Dr. Wajid Akhtar, who's a general practitioner. Enjoy. I recall when arriving um, as, a, as a child, you know, I have quite vivid memories of using the, uh, the uh, National Health Service. And, um, you know, growing up, taking for granted the fact that uh, if you're unwell, if you need medical attention, you go to a local GP or you go to the hospital and you receive whatever tests or scans and then treatment. Um, and you don't pay anything. It's something that I grew up taking for granted. And uh, once I started uh, traveling, seeing how relatives and friends and colleagues who lived in various places around the world, how they would expect to uh, receive medical treatment, it became quite clear that uh, the UK uh, stood apart from the rest of the world in terms of you know, the kind of national health service that it provided to everyone. I mean, uh, the fact that anyone who's a resident of the country can expect that kind of treatment is, is absolutely amazing. If you take into consideration the situation in America, in the Middle East, in Turkey, in the, the Far East, anywhere around the world. In fact, a few, when, when, I, was, uh, when I was much younger, uh, I remember friends of uh, my, my family coming to the UK from other countries staying the holidays and then needing medical attention and receiving that medical attention. And again, for free. I recall vividly a friend of my father who visited the hospital three, four times and received treatment and then was given medication. And upon leaving the final time, he stopped me and he said, by the way, we haven't paid. And I said, it's okay, we don't pay. And he was almost hesitant to believe me. He said, but we've been here for, you know, several times. I've received treatment. I've received, you know, x-rays and, you know, and I've been given medication. So how it could, be, I said, listen, this is how it is. You don't pay. That's something that, uh, unfortunately, I'm not saying, I mean, still, still, it's, uh, that's the, the, that's the rule that we receive medical care for free, but, um, the, the state of the NHS is way, way different from how it was. Um, it's quite clear for anyone who, uh, who has to visit A&E, for instance, or has to um, you know, wait for a scan to be had or a re referral to be made. It's quite clear that uh, the waiting lists are extremely long. The state of hospitals is nowhere near as, it, as they used to be. You find that the staff is absolutely overworked, overloaded, running around all the time and achieving you feel very, very little. So it's, I mean, it's, it's something that, uh, that is quite remarkable what has happened uh, over the past, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years, I don't know. But listen, both of you are practitioners, both of you are work within the system. So I'm sure that you'd be able to tell me more. I really appreciate what you just said. And I think what's important is for people to understand, especially those who don't live in the UK, um, but even those in the UK, what exactly the NHS is. Because uh, I was on holiday with my family to Malaysia. And in Kuala Lumpur, they have these big skyscrapers and they're built with Islamic designs. And as we were going past these skyscrapers, like any rich city, you have poor people at the foot of the skyscrapers and they're begging. So we passed some poor people and some more poor people. And then we passed uh, a lady. She had a baby in her arms. This baby had a huge head. No, no. Like the head was bigger than the whole body. This is a medical condition called hydrocephalus. The fluids of the brain, they're not able to drain into the body. So they continue to build up and build up and build up. Baby's eye gets sunken and the baby's brain is being squashed and the baby basically is dying. In the UK, it's a very simple procedure. You put a shunt from the brain into the body. It drains the fluid. The baby survives and grows up to healthy adult, no problem. This baby is there, clearly is dying on the street, and his mother is begging. So we gave some money and we moved on. And uh, one of my sons, he was small. I think he was six, seven years old. 
We were all quiet for a second. And then he turned to me and he goes, why is that baby on the street? And it was as if something snapped inside of me. You know, I didn't give him the politically correct answer. I told him I was shaking. I said, this baby is on the street because from Malaysia to Morocco, we have enough oil in the Muslim world. We have enough wealth. We have enough doctors. We have enough talent, but we don't have the heart to work, to build a system to look after our people. And in, the, in, in England, they did. They built it. So not one baby will ever die on the street for a disease that can be fixed. They will be in hospital. It doesn't matter how much money they have in the pocket. But in the Muslim world, it matters how much money you have in your pocket. That's how, many, that's how much care you'll get. And if you don't have enough money, your babies will die on the street. This is the difference the NHS makes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's telling that uh, people who go on, you know, for extensive treatments, you know, either for cancer, for instance, or for any uh, long-term illness. And again, it's almost remarkable that, the, you know, the best of equipment, the best of medical minds and the such, they're at that patient's service and no one is going to ask, you know, how much money do you have in your bank account? Uh, are you rich enough to pay for this bed that you're occupying for probably weeks? No one asked that question. And uh, doctor, you have uh, also experience of this. Yeah, that's um, luckily that we don't have that uh, like uh, across the Atlantic in, in America. That's the system. There's, there's about more than 30 million Americans. They have no at all, not even basic insurance, medical insurance. That's why I think we are lucky here to live in UK because it's, as Dr. Wise said, it's one of the best system in the world. It's even if you're a resident, as long as you have emergency, you have something to need, medical care can be there to you free at point of delivery. Um, it's a very safe uh, uh, organization, trustable. The health professional themselves is one of the highest trusted people um, in, in, in a lot of uh, research, uh, when people' opinion was taken, uh, contrary to politicians, for example, and that is mainly because they people know that these are people working hard to get their health in the best way, and nobody will ask you for a penny. That's the system that we are now celebrating 75 anniversary of it. But amazingly, these things not continuing like that. Unfortunately, there is a lot of challenges now. COVID did give us some. Um, leeway to try to open our eyes that there is a lot of challenges that haven't been dealt with before. Unfortunately, a lot of bad management in the NHS over the last 10, 20 years, or maybe even longer. Um, so there is a pressure of the NHS from within, pressure from outside, and pressure from the patient and staff. So for example, pressure from outside, you got the pressure from pharma to push for new drugs and expensive stuff, the medical industries pushing for more devices and stuff. And again, policies, government policies, uh, political correctness, all that can affect. This is, this is quite fascinating. I mean, it's incredibly frustrating uh, because you're talking about bad management, but we're talking here about a project that is at the very heart of every single society. We're not talking about a side business. We're not talking about an industry that is secondary. If it fails, it's not that important. This is something that affects every single human being who is present in this country. And of course, even from an investment point of view, I mean, investing in people's health is a huge, is a is one of the most strategic investments that any government, any country, should absolutely look after. It's central to uh, to to the future of the country, to the present of the country. But who will know better than Muslims what's going on here? Uh, uh, an amazing, uh, an amazing people, operating in a system that's failing. So a good person in a bad system is going to fail, and unfortunately, the NHS is in a system that is pushing market economy, capitalism. The NHS is bad for pharmaceutical companies because they negotiate the lowest possible price. It's bad for in uh, for shareholders because they're not going to make money from the big companies that are going to establish private healthcare systems. It's bad for the rich because it's helping the poor and the rich have to pay taxes to help with that. You know, it's, you don't have to pay at the point of use, but somebody has to pay the taxes. It's bad for the powerful because a sick society and a society that's constantly worried about its bank balance and what, how it's going to pay for the doctor is a society that's quiet and is stable. Who will know more about it than Muslims? So what's, what's the alternative in the minds of those who are making the decisions? What's the alternative to the, to the current situation? I mean, now... Uh... 
I think in the last 10, 20 years, we are seeing, I mean, I've been working in the Nigeria for 22 years. And I can compare my time when I first started and how things were done and how things now. People now are more uh, exhausted. Since COVID, we know that people all uh, overstretched, staff morale going down, payment is not as good as we can see. We see junior doctors and nurses are are uh, striking. Um, all of that indicate bad management of the system. Because, you know, uh, per capita, the NHS spending uh, less than oh, any European counterpart. It's incredible. And spite that, this is totally free. So there is bad management in that. And I can remember once upon a time, without putting names, one of the one of the prime ministers of the country didn't want to invest in obesity treatment at all for uh, for us. He only put money for the children, for the future, but not for us. So as a lost hope, that is not a good decision. I'll, I'll give you a very good example of what bad management looks like. Um, you have in the hospital, uh, the junior doctors and the senior doctors, what do they eat? Food is very important for human beings, right? If you sit in a first class in an airplane and economy class, what's the difference? Do you get there one hour earlier? Do you have less turbulence? No. It's the quality of food. It's just the quality of the food and you've got a bit bigger seat. That's it. For this, you're willing to pay four times more than economy. So it's important for human beings. What do they do in hospital? What do doctors eat? Exactly the same food as the patients, which is almost, I will say this, uh, you know, unreservedly, garbage. It's unhealthy food that they give. Do you give uh, Coca-Cola vending machines? There's no hot food. If there, there's a cheese sandwich, cheese and tomato, cheese and pickle, and then you can go home, we'll go hungry. Then they, the, so the doctors, they feel, the, the junior doctors and the senior doctors, they feel like when you go to work, you have to pay to park. And then even then, if you pay to park, half the time, there's no parking space. So you're stressed before you get to work. There's no food there for you. Or if there is, it's, very, it's not very nice food. And there's no um, consideration for you in terms of anything. Like if you have one, uh, uh, one minute to rest, there was a place called a mess where the junior doctors could go and rest. They took it away and made it office for managers. So when you are constantly treating your staff like that, then of course your staff is going to say, I'm not going to work one extra second for you. I'm going to, I'm going to try, you're, you want, you're looking after yourself, I will look after myself. But if you look after your staff, your staff will look after you and they will look after the people. So it's the whole management system. Again, I go back to the Muslim world, I want to make it relatable. We're good people operating under very bad management. And the managers, unfortunately, are creating a system in which the good people will fail. It's, uh, I mean, this is fascinating because <laughs> I, uh, as, as a layman, uh, when it comes to medical, uh, the medical services and the health sector, I would naturally expect that any discussion of the NHS would be sort of talking about um, certain medical aspects. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, I mean, you very politely call it bad management. I wonder, I wonder if this whole erosion of the NHS is actually by design, is actually done deliberately on behalf of certain politi politicians. Um, you said the Wajid, the, you know, capitalism and uh, the fact that people are looking at shares and the, the value of shares and the such, and that these considerations in the eyes of many uh, seem to be far more important than providing a decent care of the workers within the the medical sector, as well as uh, the patients in extension. I uh, I'm reminded, of course. I mean, the, the the discussion that we had over the past six seven years in America was about healthcare and about the health sector. And President Obama made a big thing about his project for reforming the health sector. And, um, you know, the information, and it's scattered information, but it's quite frightful information about how things are in America in terms of providing health. It's scary. So unless you have proper and full medical insurance, um, you need to be very careful and pray day and night that you don't fall ill. Because I mean, that's I, our future. That's the scary the, part. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I recall very well um, a, a friend of mine who works uh, in, in the Silicon Valley so he's fairly well paid. He was willing to take a, a very big pay cut to move to another company. And the reason he said, he said, because they have better medical and dental care. And I said, well, you know, he said, no, 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 this is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because if 
in my previous job, although I'm paid much more, but if I was to fall ill, I would be expected to fork out from my own pocket tens of thousands of dollars probably. And this let me thinking that is this what, uh, you know, our government, this as well as previous and maybe even previous to that, to that, is that what they're looking for? I think so. I think I'll give you an example. I, I'm a cardiologist. In America, there's something called chest pain clinic. So you go from one door, you have any pain in the chest. Within three, four hours, you'll get from the other door with a bill $50,000 to pay. They do all the investigation for you, needed or not needed, then, but you'll end up, you have to sell your house for that. Now, I can compare that. Does that the system we want? No. Yes, we might be here in UK that people have to wait two, three, six months to, to see a cardiologist. Fair enough. But at the end of the day, if they are unwell acutely or very urgently, then they go to any. Yes, they have to wait three, four hours, but still it's free. So even by comparison to the, to the managed care of America, when there's more than 30 million, not even have a basic one. And even if you have, as like your friend, you have levels. So you might have your, your level, if you have chest pain, that might not be entitled to bypass surgery for your heart. You still have to pay. So it's, it's a huge stress for people. That's why we have to, all of us, we have a responsibility, especially us, the Muslim, because this is kullukum ra'im wa kullukum rayati, where whether we are a patient or a staff or, 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 or people- Or manager. Or manager or people in, in politics, now some, a lot of Muslim now coming, that we have to take responsibility and say, enough is enough. We need to start changing things to the better. Yeah. I can remember I was used to work in Yorkshire and my friend was a big surgeon. And they told, they told him, look, 10 years ago, there was only one manager in the in theater and he was managing 20 surgeon, 20 consultant surgeon. Now there is 10 of them and they're not as good as Jones, oh the previous one. So this is part of the problem with the NHS. By the way, I mean, you, uh, you mentioned a story that I was just uh, reminded of uh, just recently was of uh, um, a patient who uh, suffered some sort of concussion uh, in America, this is, and had to go to hospital. And um, apparently some documents were given to her um, and in a daze, she just basically signed and she wasn't aware of the fact that, that she signed on a document that uh, um, sort of allowed her full sort of care, um, which she didn't feel that she was cared for um, more than normal. And for one night's stay, she was given a bill of thirty-four thousand dollars. Thirty-four thousand—that's almost twenty-eight, twenty-nine thousand pounds. It's—I uh, mean, you'd think you—you know—you're not exaggerating when you say you sometimes need to think of selling your own house in order for that one night in hospital. I mean, I'd—I'd I'd love to think what what the thirty-four thousand dollars are for, but regardless. And and you also remind me of of something important. I mean, I'm saying that in modern times and around the world, the NHS does stand out in terms of you, the theory is, the idea is, what I experienced for many decades of my life is that you get the, the, the treatment that uh, you need and then you leave without having, having to pay a penny. This is, ex this is sort of exceptional in our modern day situation, but actually, and you reminded me just now by talking about Muslims and Islam, the very first hospitals and healthcare systems that were built in the entire world almost by Abu Bakr Razi and by others, by Muslims, it was free. Bimar it was Sun. seen as part of the rights of every citizen who lived within the realm of, of, uh, of, the, of the Muslim nation. Yes, I, I do, uh, I've done lectures on, it's called the Bimaristan. The Bimaristan, yes, yes exactly. The, the, the system that was set up is something, again, we don't, we don't study enough, but it had a, a financial system which was similar to the NHS, but a little bit more um, sophisticated wow. uh, than, the, than the NHS. And, uh, and it had a system that was holistic. So just one aspect of the Bimaristan, which I think if the NHS was to adopt this model, I hope one day the Muslims adopt, re-adopt their own model, um, it could save it. Part of the Bimaristan was to educate the population. They had uh, part of the role of the hospital was to teach the population because they understood the doctors and nurses can only see a small number of people. And by the time you see them, the disease has happened. So we need to educate the general public on health measures. 
so that so they prevention, can, prevention and also that they can deal with issues before they come to us. And uh, they understood that this is going to be the real game changer. So they were able to get out there and educate people on uh, good mental health or on uh, eating and drinking and so on and so forth. And it had an impact. It meant that there was a manageable impact of the number of people who were coming. And it also meant that the, the population was less likely to take advantage of the Bimaristan because they understood that we are working together. We're a team in this. When a patient was discharged from the Bimaristan, uh, I love this story because the uh, criteria for discharging a patient was that they were able to eat one baby chicken and two loaves of bread. Wow. If they were able to finish <laughs> this, then they can be discharged, they're healthy. Incredible. And when they were discharged, the doctors, the nurses, and the patients celebrated together because it was a team effort. Now, this is something we're missing. Right now, everyone is like, if they have the smallest problem, they come to the NHS, they, they misuse medication, they misuse time of the doctors, they miss appointments. It's a two-way street. We need to work together. And uh, th that kind of holistic system. I mean, okay, since you brought this up, uh, you both um, are members of, and you're a founder of, the British Islamic Medical Association, BIMA. And um, I personally, I, I'm on your mailing list, so I receive your letters i receive your uh you know the the courses that you hold the lectures that you host and the such and i have to say that it's one of the best manifestations of islamic ethics um, within a particular sector in this case the health sector and i'm overjoyed to learn that only recently you celebrated the 10th anniversary of of bima long may it continue inshallah tell me a little bit about bima you you're one of the founders what where did the idea come from I think um, the idea is that we need to change things. The same thing we're talking about, enough is enough. Because at certain points, the Islamic ethos, when you start noticing that there's something wrong, I need to start changing things. Because I used to be a member of other two, three organizations. I'm still a member of them. But they, most of them like social activities. They come only once a year, Eids and parties. But no actual. In fact, I once I phoned them, I said, look, I, I'm in Yorkshire in, in Scarborough at that time. What do you do for activity for me? Even New York? No, it's all Birmingham or Manchester or London. So BIMA was started by a group of people, which was at that time around less than 180, 85 people sitting in Mark Fidensio saying, we need to change things. We need to see how, as a Muslim, how we can improve things. And Alhamdulillah, within the last 10 years, with a lot of young people like Dr. Wajid and the rest, mashallah, participating with a lot of ideas, BIMA have done a lot of good work. Fantastic. Mashallah. Even for the prevention side of things, we've got many projects. We've got the Lifesaver in which we teach people to save lives in the masjid, which is in fact da'wah as well as counteracting politics of all bad impression about Muslims and terrorism, everything about mosques. This is saving lives in the masjid once a year, all in collaboration with the British Heart Foundation. And they started growing from three masjids in London to more than 100 masjids and even becoming international now more than 10, eight, 10 countries internationally adopting the same position. And we got a lot of work on, on inequalities. We got some on bare below the elbow for ladies uh, having theater hijab, how their challenges in the in the, in the the theater and all of that. So we have got a lot of work. I think Brother Wajid will probably... Well, how many members do you have right now? I think our membership is uh, over six, 7,000 now, alhamdulillah. It's, uh, as Dr. Amr said, BIMA is three words, unite, inspire, serve. The first word is the most important. Unite, inspire, serve. serve. Fantastic. The first word is the most important. There are loads of Muslim doctors, nurses, physios, pharmacists, dentists, all across the UK, tens of thousands. Did you feel the impact? Probably not, unless you physically knew one or you were one. You didn't feel the impact of this. When the government wants to do a policy shift, who do they speak to? They just speak to their random Muslim friend. They don't, who do, they don't know who to speak to. When the pharmaceutical company wants to know about something, who do they speak to? Nobody knows. When the, when the imam wants to know, what, is this mental health or is this, you know, do I do ruqya? What, what, who do you speak to? Nobody knows. When somebody wants to go into dentistry, if he doesn't know any dentist, he's stuck by himself. The idea is that united, we're stronger. If we work together and we're united as Muslims, we come together all across the country. It doesn't matter if you graduated in Iraq or you graduated in London. It doesn't matter if you're a professor of medicine or you're a first-year midwife student. It doesn't matter if you're from uh, Africa or from Pakistan, and it doesn't matter if you're in uh, Wales or if you're in London. We are one. 
we are, we are all Muslim healthcare professionals. When we come together, then the barakah of unity Excellent. is, for the last 10 years, we've seen it. As Dr. Amr said, the teaching CPR in masjids. You know, I'll give you one, one statistic. The out of hospital cardiac arrest. That means somebody just, their heart stops and they fall and they're dead. If that happens outside of hospital, on the street, in the house, in Seattle, Washington, in America, the chance of survival is 33%. One third, uh, 33% chance that, that you will still live because every single person in Seattle knows how to do CPR. They've been taught in school. It's mandatory. In London, everyone is not taught, but we have heart attack centers. So in London, it's about 15% because even though no, most people don't know CPR, but you're very close to a hospital that will take care of you. In Karachi, which is a city of more than 20 million people in Pakistan, it's 0%. In Kuala Lumpur, it's less than 1%. In most of the Muslim world, it's zero, between zero and one percent chance. Why? It's just a piece of information. It doesn't cost any money to learn this information. It's a, just a, it takes maybe half an hour, one hour to learn it. But we haven't worked come together to teach it. So this is one example. We were teaching it in Bima. We said, right, we're going to teach it in the masjid. It's free. This is where the Muslims are, and we will invite the non-Muslims here as well. Ten years ago, we taught in three mosques. Last year it was 13, this year, 20, uh, last year it was 150 mosques, 13 other countries are doing it. This year, 20 other countries, inshallah, in next month, uh, one a month and a half will be doing uh, the It would be project. fantastic, by the way, I'm just, just a thought that came as, as you were saying, it would be fantastic if you went to schools and taught children. Yes, um, we want the children I mean, to come to masjid. We, we, we yeah, did think that, that. Okay, but <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, it's uh, it's absolutely uh, fascinating what's what you're telling me, and uh, and the work of Bima. I have to say, I became more aware of during the time of COVID. I became more aware of um, from 2020 up until now. That's when I really realized that. Uh, well, well, two things happened. The first is obviously the fact that here in the UK all of a sudden everyone started appreciating the NHS and who was working for the NHS. Remember, we were every Thursday, like we clapping, were clapping and banging on pots and pans, including the prime minister. So um, all of a sudden we appreciated the NHS. In between his parties, I think. Yeah. yeah he found so, <laughs> so, um, so the realization of the importance of the, of the NHS, but more importantly from at least my point of view, and I tweeted about this and commented about this, that the first victims of NHS, those who died on the front line as they, was, as they were treating patients, were Muslims. The first four, five, or probably even six doctors, nurses who actually gave their lives because they were serving COVID patients were Muslims. And that was highlighted and that was brought to the fore. And with that, the realization that there was something called Bima that existed and that you know capitalized on people's appreciation all of a sudden of the importance of health service and the role that Muslims play within the, the NHS. And this is something that I was always aware of, but uh, we never had the numbers and statistics. For instance, I recall very well, um, I had in my uh, youth, uh, I had to stay in hospital for about a week. And I recall from you know, the nurses to the doctors to the to the anesthetists to the every other guy was a Muslim, either from Asian descent or from Arab descent or from African descent, or you know, it was it was quite and this led me to think that the numbers of Muslims within the NHS is extremely substantial. I've heard some some numbers, I can't verify whether they're true or not, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of Muslims who serve within the medical sector and the health sector and have an incredible contribution to make in treating, helping, assisting, and saving people's lives. So from this, from this, my guess is that you know there is there is incredible area for us to make a contribution as to how we can save the NHS and then rebuild it once again to be what it used to be. That's why, as Majid said, unite the first stage and then the next stage, inspire, inspire. and serve. Yeah. That's why our organization in COVID was exponentially increased because we've done 
COVID response group, which was very in the front line. We managed to put, you know, remember there's a lot of, you know, misinformation about the of COVID yeah. infection itself, about the vaccine. The anti-vaxxers. Anti-vaxxer. Yeah. And, and, and we, we managed to put a, a very nice slide about it in 15 languages, including Polish, which not a lot of Polish communities, Muslims, to try to address all the local languages available to try to address this reluctance. In fact, my hospital at that time when I was working in areas of Manchester approached me saying, look, we've got staffing issue that having a problem not taking the vaccine and they are staffed. So I managed to cooperate with them with BIMA and do Facebook open discussions, you know, no, no need to mention even your name, just confidential, just what's your, and talk about. So Alhamdulillah, Bima worked a lot on that side, front line, along with other projects they are doing. So that's the, the beauty of coming together. And Bima is the only medical Muslim organization in UK who works up not only doctors, but nurses, physiotherapists, dentists, pharmacists, even chaplains, anybody working in the NHS, you are welcome to become a working member in Bima. What what kind of values does Bima try to instill in its work? It's it's Islamic values. We're very upfront that this is an Islamic medical association, not just association of people who happen to be Muslim and working in healthcare. So what does Islamic value mean? I mean, it means we're trying to implement uh, really a, a clean slate where we say, let's go back to basics. This is not one where we, we want people fighting for positions. As soon as someone starts fighting for positions, that they understand the culture in the organization is not accepting this. This is not somewhere where uh, we're running after money. We've run a lot of these projects with zero budget. In fact, we wanted to approach charities as most organizations, Muslim organizations do, let's get charity money. And our treasurer at the time, he said, we're not taking charity money. And we said, we don't have any money. We need money from somewhere. He said, no. We are going to pay charities money. This is not, we're going to stop having this mentality where we're taking. So we're really trying to think different to maybe what's happened before sometimes because we've seen um, a lot of iterations in other places where things haven't quite worked out and we're looking at where the pitfalls are. Unity is very hard to safeguard, but it's important. Uh, we could easily have become the Pakistani or Indian Islamic Medical Association, we have to actively fight against that. We could have easily become the brothers one. We have to equally fight against that. So our head of our council is a sister. For example, not because she's a token sister, it's because she's the best person for the job. We could also become the London. We, we fought against that. We could have become the Sufi, the Obandi, you know, whatever. But we actively always trying to make sure that every time we go right, we're trying to move a little bit left. We have to always try to come back to that middle ground. We are for everyone, inshallah. And the focus is on the work. So you, you, if you work hard, you can join Bima tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, you could become president. It's, we're going to base on your work rather than on who, you're from, you know, who you are, who your friends are. Do you have discussions, even internal, do you have discussions about the state of the NHS, about the challenges that's, that you face, about government funding, about um, you know the long waiting lists, about all these issues that we've we, we've we've briefly touched upon? I mean, Brother Wajid said uh, with COVID now, because as you know, politics always whether they can you are seen at doing something. Alhamdulillah, now Bima have been looked at that as a, a trustable organization have done a good work so consultation with us starting but it's that's when we have to start talking about inequalities and IMG medical graduate international medical graduate people who graduate from how we can rehabilitate them how we give them help so we, we are now trying to but that's this, the current stage. But the first stage was the, the first 10 years was establishing. Now, we're, inshallah, we'll try to move on to try to be more influential in changing the narrative and give option of solution, how we can improve do you, things. Do you, do you happen to have meetings with government ministers, with the we've health been department? To, with... Yeah, we've been invited to, we, uh, we've spoken to the Secretary of State for Health. I, I believe that some of our members have met the Prime Minister a few times. Um, but it's, it's not something we chase. Of course, uh, it's it's uh, and, and we have a lot more relationships with um, NHS, uh, you know, directors and so on. And again, it's something where we're not knocking on their door; they're knocking on ours, and we think that's the right way. Because if we knock on their door, then you come without respect. 
if they knock on your door, then that means that they respect what you've done. Um, and we will engage with them, but we, um, and we are having those discussions, you're saying, what is the future of the NHS? But uh, right now, I have to be honest, it's what Dr. Amr said, that um, we need our community to be in a much better position to not just have the discussions, but to do something about it. So at, at the moment, we're working towards that. We're working towards getting our, our own community. There's a lot of health problems in our community. There's a lot of um, health inequalities. Uh, there's a lot of areas that we can improve on for- uh, When you talk about health inequalities, what exactly are we talking about? I'll give you one. The average life expectancy in this country is 81 years old. Do you know what the average life expectancy is on Whitechapel High Street? In yeah, East London? In East London, Muslim area. Muslim area, 51. Wow, that's a huge disparity. We don't, we don't even know this disparity. The number of Muslim teenagers who have thought about suicide at least once in the last two years is one third. The number of Muslims from uh, India, Pakistani or Arab background, uh, no, Indian and Pakistani background who smoke is close to 50%. The average in this country is 18%. As one uh, Muslim researcher, who's a professor in uh, Manchester, he said that uh, the Muslim community should be preparing itself for a tsunami of cancer that's going to hit it in the next 10 years. And I told him, I was sharing the session, and I told him, um, those are two words nobody wants to hear in the same sentence, tsunami <laughs> and cancer. And I said, why? And he said, our women don't do mammograms. Our men don't go for prostate exams. We ignore a health warning signs. And we smoke, and we have high rates of diabetes, and we eat meat like it's going out of fashion. So it goes that we pretty much are getting ourselves ready. The next 10 years, because we're a young community, we haven't seen it yet average age is young but in the next 10 years the average age will not be young wait for the tsunami that's going to hit you we still have time to reverse this trend right now so these are the things these are the conversations we want this to start is, having this is scary especially if you uh, combine this with this with the with the you know, gradual decline of the nhs uh, service that that is fairly scary i mean you're talking about a real crisis looming and and other i'll give you another example uh, organ donation we find it, the first one about 10, 15 years statistic from uh, Bradford area you know, that the, the Asian, the majority Muslim, donate organs 2%, but they receive organ 8%. So there is hypocrisy in that. Yes. And that's why one do of you, the- Do you address those issues? Yeah, so we got a project now which is organ donation. In fact, last year, we've, we, we, this is one of the few funds we took uh, from the uh, uh, NHS, PT, NHS uh, blood and transplant. In, uh, we produced the first film, organ donation film that by Muslim community, by BIMA, which is uh, done by professional, Paid for it by professional to be, and it's a very good film. We we, we hiked to Ben Davis, the largest peak. Uh, myself was there with Excellent. my son, and and we, well we, we 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 raised awareness that this is a problem. You need to talk to your family about organization. I'm assuming that you refer to fiqh councils and uh, Islamic scholars in the search. They're on our team, so we we we, we uh, so Bima is where uh, we work with the scholars from variety of different backgrounds, and the other thing that we do is that we we're trying to understand that there is a difference of opinion. So we're not here to say this is the way and that this is the other opinions don't count. We say there are a difference of opinion. We want you to be aware that there's a difference of opinion and we want you to know that there's pros and cons of difference of opinion. Now you make the choice. And we, we feel confident that when people are aware of this information that most people will go towards one angle, but it doesn't mean that everyone will. There's a unity of purpose, not a uniformity of the views. Of course, of course. I mean, um, in regards with um, issue, I mean, you've just mentioned something that never occurred to me, to be honest, but but now thinking about it, I mean, it's it's something which is extremely serious. And the kind of disparity in terms of, you know, how much, uh, what's the percentage of Muslims um, giving, and, giving taking. and then taking, it, it does show a huge problem. That's, That's my card. And this is the card that you, you hold, would recommend. If, yeah. And if you, you, if you are registered and you are you are allowed by law to say, like from a Islamic perspective, you're not going to donate your testers or your sperm. So you're allowed to say what organ you want to donate. And even if you after... This can forbid, be applied for online? Yes. And they'll cover, they send it the card for you. So what I'm saying is that start the discussion even, God forbid, when you die, if your family still have the decision to reverse that. But please, by all means, the, the verse is clear. What role do you play in providing 
care, guidance, education, even for young people who are interested in pursuing uh, a medical career? Um, at the moment, we're developing that. Uh, what we're doing is something is very interesting. It's a project which we, we hope to roll out all across the Muslim world. It's called ACE. And in this project, what happens is when you get to the end of medical school, dental school, pharmacy school, they teach you medicine, dentistry, pharmacy. Yes. They don't teach you how to be a doctor right. or a pharmacist. Right. They don't teach you how to uh, book leave. What, what, Jumaa time, you have to pray Jumaa and you have a ward round. How do you do that? They don't teach you this. They don't even teach you how to do an on-call, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this, the system teaches you the, the subject, but not how to apply the how subject. How to apply, yes. So we saw this gap. And what we did is that we say at the end, when, when they finish their final exams, medicine, dentistry, pharmacy, not just for Muslims, um, we, we hold a course where we tell them we're going to get people who have already gone through this. They're going to tell you the top tips, two or three hours, top tips on how to go through an on-call, top tips on how to uh, keep your boss happy, how to get Jumu'ah prayer, how to make sure you don't uh, miss Eid and so on and so forth, how to deal with Islamophobia, all these kind of things. And it's, it's a free course. And at the end of it, the last 10 minutes, we tell them, guys, we, we took our time out of the day. We bought you here. We gave you food. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because we want you not just to be another Muslim doctor, uh, dentist, or pharmacist. We want you to become an active member of the Muslim community. You need to be leaders. You need to get involved. You, need to, you see what your community is, the situation, the dangers that are approaching it. Let's work together. This is all we're going to We want them to become active rather than just another Muslim name. And they could have been anyone else. Um, and this has been very successful, alhamdulillah. Uh, it's been growing every year. You know, uh, we're getting hundreds and hundreds of people coming through, uh, going through that and really benefiting from it. And, uh, and eventually we want to get to a stage where uh, we're going to encourage young Muslims who want to go into these jobs on how to do it as well. How do you deal, whether as an organization, as BIMA, or as individuals, how, you, how do you deal with complaints of discrimination against uh, Muslim practitioners, whether nurses or pharmacists or doctors or the such. And I, I, I remember reading um, a few months ago a report about Islamophobia within the medical sector. Um, so what would your role be or what would your advice be to someone who, uh, who suffers that, that kind of discrimination? And we have uh, a team that deals with that as well. And we have some sister organizations who do a lot of work. What we tend to do is we tend not to take a reflexive approach. The reflexive approach tends to be, uh, Muslim says, there's Islamophobia against the workplace, and then we say, let's, we, we're, let's make a us and them battle. There's a winner and there's a loser. Uh, what we tend to have is that definitely there is uh, a lot of Islamophobia, conscious or unconscious, or whether it's systemic or individual in the workplace. And what we try to do is we try to come to uh, an understanding where we make the system and the people within the system understand that, look, this isn't an advantage of the system and that this is something wrong going on here. And what we find is that most reasonable people, if you approach them without, the accu without um, an accusation or the without hostility. hostility at the beginning, if you approach them in a much more calm and um, productive manner, they're willing to accept that something's gone wrong and they're willing to change the system. So for example, as Dr. Amir mentioned, bare below the elbows, there is a, it's not scientific actually, it's only in the UK for some reason, that you have to not have anything below your elbows because this is a transmission vector. I don't know where this came from, but it's like a, a, almost like as if it's a religion. That's how it is. In, in this country. And this is a problem for Muslim sisters because some of them don't want to uh, go bare below the elbows. There is legislation that says that they shouldn't have to contravene their religious principles. Just like if someone is Sikh, they won't have to remove their turban. Um, even though you have to, you know, you should wear, everyone else should wear a helmet, but the Sikhs don't have to wear a helmet because it's, they're exempt because of their religious reasons. So when we approached and we talked to th through this way, what happened is you find allies, they say, yes, we agree with you. Let's come up with a flow chart, a system, so that if someone has this problem, this is how they approach it. Once one or two hospitals agree it, then a one trust agrees it, then three or four, then even the ones that don't want to agree with it, then we're saying, look, but the others are doing it. They fall, start falling into line. And uh, I mean, it's a difficult subject, but I, I have to ask, does BIMA concern or is it concerned with training or educating regarding how medical professionals deal with uh, those who are towards the end of life? 
patients who are on their deathbeds, who are gravely ill. Does BIMA provide any kind of assistance how to address the families, for instance, who are aware of the fact that their loved one is about to depart? I mean, tell me a little bit about this. We actually, we did participate in the consultation about assisted dying, the bell. Uh, we, had a, we had a group in, in BIMA working on that. Um, but obviously, as you, uh, the medical opinion slightly shifted regarding that. We trying to put our opinion that we are still thinking that what is in the law still can work for everybody, including people who want to be that, to, to have that approach of they want to uh, not have full medical treatment. Uh, uh, and so there is there is way that we are working on that. But obviously, uh, that all need everybody to be engaged on that, and, and it's not. Not easy subject because dying is not is in any cultures is difficult to talk it's a about. Very tough subject. And and it's sometimes if you don't approach it in the right way, it can backlash. So you have to to have a very very conscious. And obviously, I'm, I'm also aware of the fact that sometimes personal traits and personal sometimes people individually they have what it takes to deal with those situations well, and others who find it very difficult. I I I, I realize that. But let me also ask about another political football, and especially in America, and that is the case of abortion. What does Bima have a position on on abortion? I don't think we need. So we had a discussion around it, and we felt that this is a fiqh issue, and we have to be clear that we're not uh, fiqhs. We don't. We, we don't want to intrude into the space of the scholars. Um, where there is a question for a medical input, then we will provide our medical input. Uh, opinion on the medical side, but we want to leave the scholarship for the scholars as well. So what we found, and when you talked about COVID, what worked beautifully for us, it wasn't a, it wasn't just that it was a BIMA only. I think right at the beginning of COVID, when we started realizing it was going to become a thing, um, we spoke to the Muslim Council of Britain and we said, listen, this is a medical emergency. We want to run it like a medical emergency. That means we, we need all the right players in the room. We need the imams, the scholars, the Muslim community leaders, and the, the medics, the infectious disease. We need all of them in the, in the same table. And we will lead it because, we're the, because it's a primarily yes. a medical yes. emergency. And uh, to their credit, they, they agreed to this. So this is why the system came out so strong. Before any other community, this is something the Muslim community should be proud of, before any other community closed their place of worship, the Muslim community was the first, one week before the government did. You would think that we would be the last because we would fight to the bitter end, and that's what we would normally do. But because those relationships were there, you know, it wasn't uh, me speaking to an imam of a mosque that I never knew. I spoke to someone I knew I've been working for 10 years with. They trust me. And, and when the NHS asked us, how did you do what you did? Because we, th we thought that you guys would be the, mo the most backward when it came to this. We, uh, we told them one phrase, which they've really taken on board. We said, the messenger is as important as the message. You can't just give the message and put it on the Daily Telegraph and then say, why didn't anyone listen? Nobody lis reads the Daily Telegraph from my community or put it on the 10 o'clock news. It needs to be from people they trust, in a language they trust, in a location they trust, in a way they trust. And if you do it, just like with the COVID vaccines, they were complaining. They started complaining straight away. Oh, Muslims are not taking the COVID vaccine. Muslims are not taking it. We said, give us a chance. You've tried to tell them again on the nine o'clock news, let us talk to them. Look what happened. Excellent. And, you know, it's it's quite important. And I agree. Yes. And, yes. and on that, uh, just to, to comment, uh, also we got Journal of Bima, which yes. published a lot of ethical views regarding that debate about the ethical side of things. We also got the project of of the ethics committee in Bima itself. So debating all, all sorts of things. Um, and and all, a lot of that published in Journal of Bima, which is a fantastic journal. It's now coming to its fourth, fourth year now. So it's, it's a, again, production of BIMA. So there is all that debate, whether you are with or against, it's, a, it's, a, it's an open access for you to put your way or look at it Very from good. that perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think it's also important to um, ask about how much or little uh, BIMA is concerned with um, medical outbreaks internationally. Uh, medical emergencies uh, internationally about, for instance, I mean, when we talk about the the war in Yemen, I mean, the biggest problem of you know the the the, the immediate impact of the war in Yemen is children, cholera, and uh, you know all, all the, the the array of diseases and illnesses that have become uh, you know on an endemic level. So you know how much 
does Bima concern itself with that? Do you have an international arm whereby you reach out to doctors and practitioners around the world and give them training or advice or the such? There is a body called the Federation of Islamic Medical Associations. So we, it's our umbrella body. We're one part. And there's 30 to 50 organizations. So there's a Islamic Medical Association in North America, uh, Islamic Medical Association of Saudi Arabia, uh, and of many countries, uh, Pakistan, Indonesia, Malaysia, and they do on, they do look at the global picture and of relief work. Um, and we're part of that. We're an active member. We're different. We're we're a very unique member. When we joined our first um, meeting in Amman, myself and Dr. Churif, who is the ex-president of Bima, uh, every every country has to give a presentation of their activities for the year, and we were the last one because we're the newest uh, member. And the whole day, they were all giving their presentations. And just before it came to our side, Dr. Sharif turned to me and said, do you realize that every single thing that the, every other country has said is irrelevant to us because of the NHS? Because they were all celebrating, you know, that we did 1,000 cataract operations. We gave vaccination in this town, in this village. He said that, you know, we have an opportunity because they are trying to deliver the basic services to their people. And we have the basic services basic delivered. Service we can go to the next level. Yeah. This is my, you know, your your audience is from all across the world. My plea is that we don't want just a British Islamic Medical Association. We want a German Islamic Medical Association. We want French. We want Italian. It's possible. We just and we're we're willing to come and help set it up. We need to find those people who are willing to work with us. Number two, if you're in the Muslim world, this is how many more people have to die before we realize that the NHS is not. Amazing. What's amazing is the Bimaristan, our model that it was built on. Let's reclaim our heritage and let's rebuild the healthcare system from the ground up. Instead, what we tend to do and is... And for the benefits of everyone. Everyone, everyone will, benefit. will benefit. Muslim and none. Everyone exactly. will benefit. The way we think right now is that if I want to help the health of my community, I will build a hospital. We say, no, that's not the Bimaristan way of thinking. You build a system. A, se a sector and a system. A Absolutely. system, exactly. Which, which will build system. hundreds of hospitals and which will educate the people before they get into hospital. Building one more hospital is like throwing uh, you know, something into the ocean. It has an impact, but it will be swallowed up. Thank you very much, both of you. This has been a fascinating discussion, mashallah. Jazakumullah khair. Jazakumullah khair.